Now, most of you know that I did not grow up in the church, and so I always thought of faith as our fathers, faith of our fathers as a Christmas song. Who can tell me why? Somebody's going to know this answer. Because <laughs> Bing Crosby sings it on his Christmas album, which is the second best Christmas album ever. The Carpenter's Christmas album is the best Christmas album ever. So, yes, I am weird. What can I say? <laughs> but now I got my notes straight. So, let's pray. Lord Almighty, we invite you here among us now. God, I pray that you would remove from us those things that would distract us from uh, hearing and obeying your word. Forgive us, Lord, of our sins. And God, cause us to turn our ears and our hearts towards heaven so that we can give you all the glory and praise by all of our attitudes and actions. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I don't watch the evening news for several reasons, but one stands out in particular. Because on the evening news, the one objectively true doctrine from the Bible is most vociferously denied on television. Original sin. Human beings sin because we are born sinful. And every evening we are overstuffed by a smorgasbord of proof that man is fundamentally sinful and that we sin continually. Yet our network response is a sober-faced denial that there is anything wrong with our hearts. My friends, if there is nothing else in this world to mourn, it is the constant stream of terrorist attacks, power-hungry politicians, unscrupulous businessmen, absentee fathers, and delinquent mothers. Such testimony to our sinful hearts on the evening news is celebrated rather than mourned. If such an obvious truth is so roundly denied, there is hardly any chance that something as subtle and profound as the Beatitudes will be accepted, especially something so counterintuitive as Matthew 5.4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, I don't have to tell you this, mourning in our culture is shunned like the plague. We carefully dance around death using a thousand euphemisms and medicate ourselves with whatever drug appeals to us. Could be work, could be play, could be some sort of entertainment. We turn to these to fill our hearts so that we can't hear the cry within for truth, goodness, and beauty. You see, our drugs of choice, even those drugs that are socially acceptable, are empty idols. They are empty idols if they are used to drown our need rather than elevate us to a closer relationship with Jesus who enables us to survive the storms we face. One very famous storm was experienced by Jonah, and he said, those who cling to worthless idols 
forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Now in this case, the grace that could in fact be ours is the comfort that is available. Closer than the tips of your fingers. And it is available for those who grieve appropriately. The lesson we'll learn from this verse is all and only godly grief can and will be comforted. I get this from our verse. Blessed are those who mourn for or because they will be comforted. Now, this spiritual mourning, or Paul says, we'll see later, godly grief is not primarily external. One of the characteristic faults of the contemporary American church is that we err by walking around miserable, pushing everyone away from us because we are wicked sinners, or we're walking around with this superficial happiness. Non-believers can spot that sort of disingenuousness a mile away. But both of these, this oh, woe is me, and this, everything is perfectly okay, along with the drugs of choice, these idols that Jonah was talking about, (coughs) they stem from a defective view of sin and a defective view of redemption. Tonight, what I want to do is I want to look at our passage and some other verses, and I want us to gain a better appreciation of our own sin and a better appreciation of the redemption that is offered for us in Christ so that we can learn to grieve in a godly manner. So, let's start by correcting our view of sin. What is it that we are to mourn? What are we to have this godly grief about? Well, the first one is easy. Mourn your own spiritual poverty. Last week we talked about this. Our spiritual poverty is the fact that we are totally depraved. Or if you were here last week and you prefer bacon to tulips, we're bad people. Thank you. This is not the same as the original sin we just talked about a few minutes earlier, but they are in fact kissing cousins. To be totally depraved means that we are corrupted by our original sin in such a way that, number one, we are damaged in every aspect of our being. There is nothing about us that is whole, that is as God created us to be. It doesn't mean, by the way, that we are as bad as we could be, as should be obvious. But the second thing that this total depravity or the fact that we are bad people, the second thing it means is that you and I cannot earn a right relationship with God no matter what we do or don't do. When we unmask our poverty, as we talked about last Sunday, when we confess it to ourselves and to others, then we will have the kingdom of heaven, the reign of God, the power of God available to us as close as our fingertips. Our point last week is unmasking our spiritual poverty reveals extravagant living abundance. And now we can see how these are related. All and only godly grief can and will be comforted. So we mourn our own spiritual poverty. The second thing we mourn is our own sin. Not only are you a sinner by birth, You are a sinner, as am I. 
But you sin because you are a sinner. You must mourn your own contribution to the world's evils, to the poor quality of your relationships, and to your own bad attitudes and actions. I'm guilty. Is anybody else here guilty with me? Okay, for the rest of you, lying next week. I'm telling you, we're going to get you. Gary Tyra said it this way. He said, Jesus' followers must be the kind of people who instead of minimizing their sin and continually justifying themselves before God and others are profoundly aware of and are grieved by the presence and effect of sin in their own lives. Jesus' followers are not going around trying to justify their attitudes and actions. They are receiving God's grace. So we mourn our spiritual poverty. We mourn our sin. And then we mourn the sin of the world. Pedophilia. Stirring up division in the church. The willful destruction of our natural resources. Lying to the Spirit. Racism. Ignoring sin in your heart or the hearts of those around you. Warmongering. Failing to repent of your sin before your brother or sister in Christ. These, my friends, are the sins that we should mourn. The sin of the world is massive. The enculturated, ingrained, institutionalized evil around us ought to make us mourn. Starvation. Starvation in the Sudan, genocide in Rwanda, sex trade everywhere, genocide in Santa Maria. These ought to make us mourn. The fourth one is that we should mourn the sins that others commit against you. Now, I want to comment on this because this is important. Your mourning sins committed against you ought not to be concerned merely with the harm that their sin caused you. That's part of it, right? Admittedly so. They sinned against you. They caused some harm against you. But as believers, we should also mourn the harm and the hurt that person has in their hearts that both caused them to sin against you and that is a result harm and hurt in their hearts that's a result of their sinning against you. In other words, my friends, mourn for that person. Feel pity for that person who sinned against you because their heart is not right with their Lord. Which brings us to the final reason to mourn. We ought to mourn what all this sin has done to our Lord Jesus Christ. Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Your sin, my sin, is what caused Jesus to be nailed on the cross. If we don't mourn that, there is something wrong with our hearts. R.W. Glenn in this book that we're sort of going through, Crucifying Morality, says this. He said, we should mourn our sin, not as an abstraction, oh yes, I am a sinner, 
or simply because we broke God's rules, or even because we ran our own lives. Instead, we should mourn because we see our sin and our righteousness as our own personal murder weapon in the unjust execution of Jesus Christ who loves us so much. That kind of remorse will make you simultaneously hate your sin and love your sinner all the more. This is what it means to mourn in a godly way, to recognize that our sin and our righteous deeds, which are as filthy rags, is what Christ paid for on the cross. This is godly grief. This is spiritual mourning. All and only godly grief can and will be comforted. Now these five things to mourn cause in us a painful realization. (coughs) That realization (coughs) is that all the suffering in the world stems from the sinful and and self-destructive human tendency to act as if God does not exist. Your sinful attitude, my sinful action is because we have this mistaken belief in our minds that God does not exist. We are acting as practical atheists. Now, if this turning away from God in your heart does not cause you to mourn, then you may very well not be a Christian. But I believe better things than that for us. And therefore, all and only godly grief can and will be comforted. Now, We talked about having a correct understanding of our sin. Now we need to turn and have a better understanding of Christ's redemption for us. He says that redemption is the forgiveness of our sins. Matthew 5, 4, Blessed are those who mourn for or because they shall be comforted. Notice why the person in Matthew 5, 4 is blessed. It's not because they mourn. It's because or for they shall be comforted. We are blessed because we will be comforted. The best single statement in the Bible about this reality, other than right here, is found in 2 Corinthians 7.10. Paul writes, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regrets. That's the blessing. Whereas worldly grief produces death. And that is the curse for not trusting God's promise. Now, of course, the quintessential, the best example of this reality is the comparison between Judas and Peter. Because both of them betrayed their master. Judas betrayed his master by leading the authorities to Jesus under the cover of darkness so that they can arrest Jesus without incident. That is how Judas betrayed his master. Peter betrayed his master when he denied Jesus because he was more afraid of a little girl than of disappointing his Savior. Note that both men repented of their betrayal. This is important to catch. Judas returned his useless blood money. He threw it into the the treasury. And he said, I have done wrong. Judas obviously repented. 
And Peter famously wept bitterly over his failure. But the difference in the stories is that Judas could not bear to face the one whom he had betrayed. So he hung himself. Peter could not bear to be apart from the one that he abandoned, so he swam naked to get to him. The difference resulted in the fact that Jesus gave Peter the keys to the kingdom and Judas is the one for whom it would have been better had he not been born. You cannot get a starker difference than that. One ran away from Jesus and the other ran toward Him. One mourned his sins with a godly grief and one mourned his sin with worldly grief. Peter's Grief brought repentance and life. Judas' grief brought death. So here's where the rubber meets the road. If you forget everything else I say tonight, I want you to catch this. When you're laying on your bed tonight and you're remembering some sin and it's painful, it's, it's causing you shame this sin, because you fell to it again. What can you do? What hope do you have? Is it the right thing to do while you're laying there to wallow in your grief and allow shame to cloud your vision of your future? Absolutely not. If we've learned anything in this series so far, grace is available to everyone. Grace is even available to you in the midst of your grieving and your shame over this sin. My friends, listen. Shame is to be used to alert us, to bring to our attention this grief that we must embrace. But we don't embrace shame. Instead, we turn to God's Word. We turn to the promises that we have memorized. And as we memorize these promises, God's Word washes over us. Your God does not reject you when you sin. Your God does not turn His face away from you. Rather, He's saying, run to Me. Don't be like Judas and go hang yourself. Run to Me and receive grace. Whatever it costs. If you are facing temptation right now, sometimes what you need to do is simply get up and move your body out of the way of the temptation. That is a common thing. That's what we need to do more often. We need to heed Jesus' Word. Chop off your hand. Gouge out your eye. Do whatever it takes to avoid the temptation. But you must always move your heart. You must always move your heart. This will take effort. This takes discipline. This takes struggling. My friends, grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is not opposed to you having to get your rear end up and doing something, grace is opposed to earning. You thinking that I did this because of my own good looks, which of course would never work for me. 
Because Jesus is not standing in front of you, you need to, quote, do something else in order to run to Jesus. We can't physically run to Jesus. So what do we do? We run to His Word and there we find all and only godly grief can and will be comforted. So when you're in your temptation, turn to God's Word. Know that He receives you as His his son or as His daughter and recognize that you don't need to be ashamed. What you need is to turn and receive His blessing. What we've been talking about so far in reference to Matthew 5-4 is this understanding of mourning with regards to our sin and getting a solid understanding of what our sin is. And then we talked about having a solid understanding of our redemption. And that is absolutely crucial. I I believe that is the primary message that Jesus is trying to get at by preaching this. However, everybody in this room knows that we mourn quite a few things that aren't even necessarily related to our sin. We must face reality of mourning. Very often we mourn the tragedies, the horrors, the things in your lives that I don't know about, but the Lord does. Just unspeakable losses. We should not have to face these. And these are the result of living in a sin-sick world. And the promise, the promise that we must turn to is one of the most often quoted. Romans 8.28 And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. I read that knowing that you've heard that verse, but also knowing something else. For them who have run to God in the day of their disaster, for those who have turned in their mourning to the Lord who have given godly grief instead of worldly grief that leads to death. They are better off having suffered. I say this in painful conscious humility because I know that there are many in this room who have suffered enormously. And I add that this is a matter of faith. This is a matter of trusting the promises of God for you in Christ. And if it were merely me saying this, I would say that that was hopelessly, absurdly arrogant. But all I can say is this is what our Lord has said. Understanding that those who have run to their God in their disaster are better off for having suffered is a matter of changing your mind regarding their circumstances and the one who holds your circumstances in his hand, in his loving hand. This promise that all things work together for your good 
is the grace that you need to receive the blessing of comfort in the midst of your trial. This blessing is available to all who trust God's promise and is closer to you than your untrimmed fingernails. This blessing is an example of the promise, this promise fulfilled. All and only godly grief can and will be comforted because God has said, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Now I want to address one more question. How does all and only godly grief can and will be comforted fit with what we talked about last week with regards to blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven? This idea that I said last week, unmasking your spiritual poverty reveals extravagant living abundance. How does mourning relate to spiritual poverty? Now, I don't want to overemphasize this, but the confession of spiritual poverty, this idea that I can do nothing to please God and I have nothing to offer Him by way of earning the blessing, will of necessity, this confession of spiritual poverty will be accompanied by a sense of mourning. You cannot realize that you indeed are sinful, that you in fact sin, that you are the, both the recipient of and the perpetrator of sin without mourning. Listen to the words of these song, this song that you have sung a thousand times, but listen to me reading them. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I am found. I was blind, but now I see. Amazing grace is so sweet because and only for those who have tasted the bitter pill of their own wretchedness. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Now, the reality is, as we all live life in the real world, we live a frenzied, passionate life of continually holding before our eyes a mourning over sin would drive us mad. This idea, if we were always thinking about it, would drive us crazy. So in our final question for today is, how do I get a sense of godly grief? And how do I keep it before my eyes, this sense of godly grief, in a healthy manner? Well, you have probably already guessed my answer, or you will after we get to the end of the Beatitudes, because I'm going to keep coming back to it. Don't seek godly mourning. Don't seek something that you've made up in your head is what it is. Seek Jesus. The secret to mourning effectively is to keep the Word of God before your eyes. Understand your sin by having it continually brought before your attention. Understand your redemption by having it continually brought before your attention. Only by continually, purposefully going through God's Word will you have a healthy understanding of the good news washing your heart, washing your eyes so that you will be comforted. Even if that comfort comes in motivation to glorify God with greater striving by grace. 
There's one man who embodies this reality because he sinned far more grievously than any of us in this room. He also was greeted, given a greater comfort than most of us will feel. We're going to watch a very brief film clip. I guess we're not. You know, I once heard a rumor that people were able to share the gospel without computers. That's probably not true, right? Okay. Here's what John Newton found out. John Newton, you all know, slave trader, wicked wretch of a man, uh, came to Christ, had had an experience of grace, and he fell back into slave trading. So now he's on his way back home, and he's realizing the depths of what it is that he has done. And guess what? North Atlantic storm comes and just about destroys the ship. He barely gets to the very top of the edge of Ireland in a makeshift raft, thinking for sure that he is going to die, but he does not. And what does he do? He goes to seminary and becomes a pastor. Yay, John. We love John. Not only that, but he writes not only Amazing Grace, but some other great hymns. But the scene that I wanted you to see in the movie Amazing Grace, if you have never seen the movie Amazing Grace, you've got to see it. The scene that I wanted to show you was him weeping in tears. And he he says to William Wilberforce, who is beginning the fight to end the slave trade, he's weeping with tears and he says... I can finally cry. I can finally deal with this pain because he's doing something about it. God has given him the grace to strive by grace. He is giving him comfort. And this comfort was in the form of, number one, knowing, no, sorry, go back, knowing Two things. I am a great sinner, he said, and Christ is a great Savior. And the second thing is he finally understood only an all godly grief can and will be comforted. Lord Almighty, I pray for my brothers and sisters and I pray for myself and I ask Jesus that you would give us this godly grief and that you would give us this holy comfort Help us, Jesus, to strive by grace against our sins and to glorify you in all of our attitudes and actions. We love you, Jesus. Amen.